Well, uh, it's both a privilege and a real delight to introduce to you James Forsyth, who is a dear friend of our families and has been since, gosh, the early 1990s. We moved to Scotland in 1993. I got to know his parents. They were in our church, and they became our best friends there, and uh, we have remained close to this day. And uh, James, when we moved to Scotland, was probably about 12 years old, and our boys were like five and three or six and three. And, and uh, both of our boys wanted to play soccer, and, and so James was already playing at a pretty high level. He was very skilled at it. And so I used to bribe him and give him one pound to teach my boys how to play soccer, which is the equivalent of a dollar 45, uh, which means that I got a really good deal and he got. Well, I'm not sure, but he'll pay me back at some point, I'm sure. Well, James, is, he became a really good soccer player, played for the University of Edinburgh, and uh, from what I've heard, had an opportunity to play pro, but God had a different calling for him. He ended up moving to the United States, going to seminary at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. And then uh, was called to McLean Press in McLean, Virginia, where he eventually became the senior pastor. And then at the calling of the Lord, ultimately, uh, Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church, one of the largest churches in our circles, it's a member of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church denomination, called him several times, truly. And uh, finally, uh, he believed it was the Lord's will for him to go. So he is there now as our senior pastor, and God has really blessed that effort already. But you'll see, uh, you'll get to know James really quickly. He's somebody that you cannot help but like. He has a big smile for people. He has a big heart for God and a big view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. James, thank you for coming. Thank you for being with us this weekend. Welcome. Let's welcome James to the pulpit. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Thank you to, to Mike and the session for the invitation to, to be here this weekend. Um, honestly, it was easy for me to say yes. Uh, first of all, because um, I think good leaders enjoy being around great leaders, and I will take every opportunity I can get to spend time with Mike and spend time with Judy and their family. A great blessing, great blessing to me. Also, an easy invitation to say yes to, though, because, friends, um, I believe in global mission. I believe in global mission. From Mike's introduction, and of course from the accent, you can tell that I'm, I'm not from around here. I'm from Bonnie, Scotland, which means what? Which means that I'm the beneficiary of global missions. I wouldn't be in the faith had Jesus not sent someone to go and get me. And friends, can I remind you that the same is true for, for all of us here in America? that you are the beneficiary of, of global mission, that you wouldn't be in the faith unless Jesus had sent someone to get you? Do you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 4 uh, when Jesus had healed a blind man and then he went to Scotland? Do you remember that passage? Yeah. <laughs> and then you turn the page and he casts out a demon and travel to America. <laughs> Do you remember those passages? No! Why? Because they're not in there. <laughs> the only reason you and I are in the faith is because our faith is a global faith. And Jesus sent someone to come and get us. And now he sends us 
in turn. Sends us to be a part of his global mission. So friends, I want to take a few moments to consider how we can be faithful to that, to that call. How we can be faithful and even fruitful in the call to be a part of God's work here on earth on earth. And I want to do that by turning to the book of, of Nehemiah. I invite you to turn there or follow along on the screen. I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter, chapter 1. Let's give our attention, let's give our affection to what God has to say to us this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this section of your word. And we pray that as we consider how we might be faithful and even fruitful in the call that you have placed upon us to take the gospel to the world, that, that you would come and be our teacher from, from your word. That in these moments together, we, we wouldn't just go through the motions, that wouldn't just be dead routine, but that we would meet with you and that your spirit would do a work to teach us of your love and its implications for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just read the, the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, but we actually find ourselves joining halfway through a story. Why? Because the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. They were only divided many years after, after they were written. The story is set in about 445 BC after some of the Bible's worst bad guys, the Babylonians, have come and destroyed Jerusalem. First, they have destroyed the city itself. The city of God is in ruins. Then they destroyed the temple within the city. The dwelling place of God is in ruins. 
Then, having destroyed everything, they carried many of the Israelites off into exile. The people of God are far from home. And now, together, what was originally the one book of Ezra and Nehemiah tells us about how these Israelites who had been scattered started to come home, started to come back to Jerusalem. Happened under the wave of, of three leaders, uh, the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra that we read about in the book of Ezra. And then a third wave of Israelites returned from their exile to Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. And that's what this book here is about. Now, Nehemiah is an Israelite, but he lives in exile. He's been carried off far from home and now lives in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And look down at what happens in verse 2. His brother comes to visit him from Jerusalem, and so Nehemiah asks him for a report. How are things going in the homeland? How are things in the city of God? And do you see the devastating reply that comes in verse 3? The remnant there in the province is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The city of God and the dwelling place of God and the people of God are not doing well. All is devastation. All is destruction. His is a broken world. A broken world. I think many of us perhaps feel the same way when we look at our world today. We pick up the paper, we turn on the news, and the reports aren't good. We read about war in Ukraine. We read about the troubles in, in Iran. We read about refugees and, and poverty. We read about climate change and disease and, and food insecurity. We read about human trafficking and about oppression and modern-day slavery. We read about the challenges of, of mental health and, and gun violence and all the confusion in our world over human sexuality. We read about the 40% of the world's population who do not know the name of Jesus and will never hear the name of Jesus unless someone brings it to them from the outside. We look at a world in desperate need of Christ and his grace. And amidst it all stands the church, which here in America is in decline. New research has, has come out telling us some of the impact COVID has had upon the American church. Uh, only 28% of Americans, so just over one in four, attend church even once or twice a month. 25% of churchgoers, so one in four, did not return after, after the pandemic. For the first time now, more churches are closing than are being planted in America. America is now the biggest English-speaking mission field in the world. There are more lost people who speak English in our country than in any other nation of the world. And so, at this mission conference, we think of the nations, we think of this nation, and here's the central, here's the central question for us this morning. Friends, what do you do? What are you going to do? What do you do when you hear that the world is broken? What do you do when you hear that the world, what are we meant to do with this broken world? Well, Nehemiah is going to show us perhaps where, 
where to start. In this chapter, he does three things that we can all, we can all learn from. Three things that show us how we, the church of Jesus Christ, can love this broken world. You ready to look at them together? Point one, what do you do when you hear that the world is broken? First, you weep. You, you weep. Look down at verse four with me. As soon as I heard these things, Nehemiah said, as soon as he heard that the city of God and the dwelling place of God and the people of God were in ruins, as soon as he heard that his world was broken, what did he do? I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, remember that Nehemiah himself is living in, in Persia. He has a, a safe place. He is doing a pretty secure job. For him, there's a sense in which life is going, going swimmingly. And yet, when he hears about the brokenness of his world, it affects him personally. He sits down and he weeps and he keeps on crying for days. The tears flow and they last for days. His heart breaks for his broken world and it makes us wonder whether or not we care like this. Whether or not we care like this. Do we care about the Christas of the world? Krista was living a happy life in her home village in western Cameroon. This is a picture, picture of her. She owned a beautician shop and uh, lived with, with her parents. But then her father died and her nightmare began. Her uncles sold her into marriage with a, a much older man, and for six months she was kept against her, her will and abused in every way that you might imagine. Until one day she managed to escape. A man came to her and said, for such and such a price, I can get you safe passage out of this place. And she paid him everything that she had to make the most of this opportunity. But you can imagine from there that things actually only got worse. Why? Because this wasn't an honest offer. This was a trick to take her into, into yet more human trafficking. And so she was trafficked across a dozen different countries. Carrying the, the newborn child that she'd born to her abusive husband, she soon became pregnant again by rape and is now living well below the poverty line seeking asylum with these two young infants in the country of Cyprus. Now here's the thing, friends. You know her story's not uncommon in our world. You know her story's not that unusual. You can talk to to, to our mission partners that are they're here with us this week. You can hear their stories of, of the brokenness that they're seeing in, in their world day by day and week by week. All stories that should make us weep. And it's not just the state of the world at large that should make us weep. It's also the state of our, think of our own community. Think of all the lost friends and neighbors you have who are dealing with all the difficulties and struggles of this life and trying to navigate them all without Jesus. Kids, the, the other kids that you pass in, in the school hallway. Or all those people you get stuck with traffic in on the highway. Or the people you stand in line beside at the grocery store 
who, who don't know the Lord, who are far from Jesus, when we alone have the message that can give them hope. The plight of our lost community should also make us weep. And so here's my question. Do you remember the last time you were moved? Do you remember the last time you wept for our broken world? You know, you and I, we might be like Nehemiah. We might be in a safe place and have a secure job, and for us, life might be going swimmingly. But when we hear about the brokenness of our world, we should take it personally. It should move us to heartbreak and tears. When you hear the world is broken, weep. Okay, but what else do we do when we hear that the world is broken? Nehemiah starts with tears, but he doesn't stop there. After crying, he gets up and he begins the work of praying. What do you do when you hear the world is broken? First, you weep, and then second, you pray. Look down in verse 4. Do you see what he says? After weeping, I continued in fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He takes his broken heart, and he pours it out before the Lord. And can we just enjoy the content of his prayer for a minute? Because I want to learn to pray like this. I want us all to learn to pray like this this. He starts, Luke, in verse 5 with adoration. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He calls out God's greatness, his grandeur, his sovereignty, and his, his faithfulness. He begins his prayer by reminding himself of who it is that he's praying to, a God who is, who is great. After adoration, though, look, he moves, verse 6, to confession. And now I pray, he says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He's acknowledging that the desperate plight of God's people is, is actually their, their own fault. It's the result of their own rebellion against their, their God. They have, they have turned their backs on him and are, in a sense, getting their just reward. And yet, having made that confession, look, he then moves to giving thanks. Verse 8, he starts to review God's promises. Remember your word. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, I will gather you from the uttermost parts of heaven. And then he thanks God for saving them. Verse 10, that's the key verse. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Though your people are in ruin, um, you have not forgotten them. Mercy and grace are still being offered to, to his broken world. And so after adoration and confession and, and thanksgiving, Nehemiah moves to supplication. He moves to, to make a prayer request. We read it in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. His prayer request is that God would help him succeed with this man. We'll learn from chapter 2 that this man is is the king. And Nehemiah is going to use his position, uh, the right hand of the king, to, to go in and try and secure the release of God's people. And so what's Nehemiah doing? Well, he knows that if the people are to return, he's going to need the favor of the earthly king. And so he goes and he prays to the heavenly king to grant him everything that he will need to secure the people's release. Adoration, confession, 
thanksgiving supplication, and I wonder if you've ever prayed for the broken world like this. You ever prayed for our broken world with a bit of this life, with a bit of this energy, with a bit of this feistiness? I read recently about Martin Luther, that great reformer who routinely prayed boldly for, for healing. And one time, a co-worker of his became ill, and Luther had prayed for him, and, and afterwards, Luther said this, I besought the Almighty with great vigor. I attacked him with his own weapons. Quoting from Scripture, all the promises I could remember that prayers should be granted and said that he must grant my prayer if I was henceforth to put faith in his promises. You ever prayed like that? You ever said, God of heaven, you've told me who you are. You've revealed your character, and you've made promises in your word. So now come and make good on these promises, because if you don't fulfill your promises, how are we going to believe them for our future? In accordance with who you are, come and answer our prayers. And I read that, and I feel so convicted, because friends, so often aren't, are your prayers like mine, often so anemic, so maudlin, so weak. Oh God, you're good and you're great, and here's some stuff I sort of kind of care about, and you're big enough to change things in this world, I guess, so it would be really helpful if you did. And uh, I want to watch a Netflix show now, so in Jesus' name, amen. Right? That's not how Luther prayed. That's not how Nehemiah prayed. And imagine if we prayed for our broken world like this. Imagine if we prayed, for example, for, for the Afri Afghan refugees that, that Jesus has brought to this, this community. If we said, God, you, we adore you, and you're good and grand and great, and you are in control of our lives, and you are in control of the people that you've made our neighbors. And we confess, Lord, that there's no reason you should use us in reaching them, because we are a sinful, broken, ridiculous gathering of Christians. Who, who don't deserve anything from your hand. And, and, and actually, Lord, even these Afghan refugees don't deserve anything from your hand. And yet we thank you, Lord, for gospel grace. We thank you that you have, have shown us the favor that we don't deserve, that, that you have also shown this favor to these dear souls who are made in your image, that you have sent Jesus to die for us all. And so now we bring our supplications, we bring our requests. Use us, God, to love this community. Use us to clothe them and house them and give us gospel opportunities to share about your love with them and use us to gather them to your name so that one day we might all gather together around that throne where you have promised that there will be people from every tribe and nation and people and language. Will you do that in Jesus' name? And then together we'll say amen. 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 Can I suggest, friends, if we prayed like that, we'd pray more. When we examine our own prayerlessness, the root of our own prayerlessness is often we feel like it's a waste of time. And with the gospel conviction, can we say that sometimes our prayers are a little bit of a waste of time? Because we're just going through the motions. We're not adoring and confessing and thanking and bringing supplication to our great God. Will you pray for our broken world like this? Will you pray for the nations of this earth? 
Will you pray for your lost friends? Will you pray for your kids to come to know Jesus? Use this Acts model and pray. So what do you do when you hear the world is broken? Well, first, we weep, and then we pray. But Nehemiah isn't done yet. He does one more thing when he hears that his world is broken, teaching us that when we hear the world is broken, we weep, yes, we pray, yes, but then we commit. We commit. We commit to doing something for our broken world. Where do we see this in the text? Well, look down with me at verse 11. Did you catch the last line? It's, a, it's an odd one. It's a bizarre one. It doesn't seem to flow from the rest of the text. We've had the passage of weeping and praying in great deep theological language, and then we get, now I was cupbearer to the king. Kind of footnote at the end, Nehemiah's LinkedIn profile tacked on to the end of this incredible passage of, of weeping and praying. What's going on here? Well, it was the cupbearer's job to taste the king's food and drink before the king ate or drank. This, therefore, was a position of great trust. See the trust that, that, that the king had to put in his cupbearer? Um, if, if, my, if my food or drink is poisoned, he's the one who's going to take the hit. And so I'm going to trust this, one, this man with, with my very life. But not only was it a position of great trust, it was also a position of great access, access to the king. Why? Because breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks in between, everywhere the king went, the cupbearer was beside him. And so no one had access to, to the king like the cupbearer. The cupbearer was the king's right-hand man. And Nehemiah references the fact that that's his job because he's already coming up with a plan. Go home this afternoon and read Nehemiah chapter 2 you'll see that Nehemiah is going to use his position at the right hand of the king to secure the release of God's people. For just now, the, the, point is, the point is simply this. As Nehemiah weeps, as he prays, he also has a plan. Through heartbreak and prayer, he commits to action. Don't you just love that? That he's not the kind of guy to sit on the sidelines. The Nehemiah is a man of tears, yes, and prayer, yes, but also a man who gets things done, that he has moved through heartbreak and prayer to actually take action. Don't you love that kind of man? And it, doesn't it make you think of another man? <laughs> Do you see how this is a, a gospel text? A passage that points beyond itself to, to, the, to the beauty of grace? To that prophet who wept over Jerusalem. To that priest who would pray for his people. To that king who would use his position at the right hand of the Father to commit to action for the welfare of his own. Friends, here's the point. What Nehemiah did for Jerusalem, Jesus has done for us. What he did for Jerusalem, Jesus has done for us and it's his love that now fuels the mission that he has called us to friends christian you were not made to sit on the sidelines god did not recreate you to sit on the bench 
He saves us and then he recommissions us. He puts us back in the game to be men and women of tears and prayer, but also men and women of of action, people who are moved to get things done. Our heartbreak and our prayers actually lead us into new things for his kingdom. And don't you want that kind of life? Who wants a life on the bench? We don't. We want to live lives that make a difference. And so I wrap up by asking you, friends, what's one thing you'll do after this conference to commit? What's one way in which this mission conference will will make a difference in your life? Perhaps God is calling you to give generously to this church and you should. Your own faith promise budget reaches thousands of people here and across the world. Maybe God is calling you to be a part of that. Perhaps God is calling you not to give your money but to start giving some of your time. Maybe he'd call you to get involved in one of the local partners that your church supports to go to the homeless shelter, to go to the women's shelter, to go to the food bank, uh, get up on a Saturday morning, take your kids, roll up your sleeves, and, and get, get to work. Perhaps he'd call you to show hospitality to one of the refugee families that the Lord has brought here. Maybe you would invite them into your home. Maybe you would serve them a meal. Maybe you would look for opportunities to share the gospel with them as well. Maybe the Lord would, would call you to go, on, to go on a mission trip. This church sends several every year. One of the upcoming ones is going to be to, to Athens. You can go spend time with Emmanuel in Greece. It's not exactly suffering for Jesus, okay? You can do this. You can do this. Friends, would you allow me to say, I don't mind what you do, but do something. I don't... I don't mind what you do, but do, do something. Don't let this be another missions conference that just comes and goes. Let this be a line in the sand moment for you where you start a little more deeply to follow Jesus, to be a person of, of, of weeping and a person of, of praying, but also a person who commits. Westminster Presbyterian Church. What Nehemiah did for Jerusalem, Jesus has done for you. And so, let's do the same for this broken world. Let's weep. Let's pray. Let's commit. You see how your name compels you to do that? (laughs) And the love of Christ equips you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time together in your word, and we thank you for being such a big God who has given us such a big gospel that it would extend to the very ends of the earth. As the beneficiaries of global mission, we pray that you would move us to weep and pray and commit and be a part of of your mission here on earth. And we pray these things in the happy name of Jesus. Amen.